This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Roland Vandermeer. Hello and welcome to Bay Area Ventures, coming to you live from the campus of, Sam- of Wharton in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, both an investor in venture capital as well as an operating executive, as well as a big fan of sustainability and money that matters. The show that we're hosting here today is part of Bay Area Ventures, but it's really about focusing on people that are making a difference out there that are really altering the planet as we see it and seeing how we can grow better food. In this case is Rob Hurlbut joining me today as he is the Managing Director of Agriculture Cultural Capital Management, the leading organic permanent crop team probably in the world, if I'm not mistaken, but we'll find out later from Rob. And then second hour, we'll speak with David Parker, founder and CEO of New Rubber Technologies, which is all about the issue of recycling rubber of all sorts, which is a massive environmental problem, as we know. Anyway, here we are back with Rob. And if you have any questions for me or a guest coming up, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And I'm thrilled here to introduce my first guest, Rob Hurlbut, as I said, Managing Director of Agricultural Capital, where he leads Agricultural Capital Sustainable Agricultural Strategies. Rob, welcome to the show. Roland, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, we go back a long ways, by the way, but full disclosure, when Rob first started, I was there, part of the team, bringing him on board to actually head up this effort, which has now turned into a humongous effort, actually. And uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit and tell you a little bit about agricultural capital. Sure. So um, uh, as Roland mentioned, we got to know each other five years ago when uh, the seed of the idea of, of uh, sustainable agriculture investing was uh, just being germinated. Uh, and at the time, uh, I think that the challenge that we saw was uh, that consumers were clearly moving towards uh, more organic and regeneratively produced foods, uh, but that the supply of those foods was uh, very sticky and coming online. And particularly in the U.S., uh, organic acreage was not growing despite a 15-year trend of double-digit growth in the organic category, food category broadly. And uh, we were you know, trying to figure out what, what would it take to, to lubricate that supply chain. And um, we came up with the idea of um, uh, taking a, uh, a strategy to actually invest in uh, a number of crops that we thought had very strong consumer dynamics, so more demand than the market had available currently. Um, we wanted to do it in a vertically integrated fashion, so not only investing in farmland but also in food processing assets um, to deliver on the promise that consumers had expected in terms of quality and food safety. Uh, third, we wanted to do it at sufficient scale to unlock synergies and efficiencies. And then fourth, and perhaps most importantly, we wanted to do it with a regenerative focus. So we felt that by taking a very sustainable and long-term thoughtful approach to how we are operating these assets, we could actually increase value in those assets over time uh, more than one, what one might have if it had been a conventional strategy. So wow. that's what we've been up to for the last five years. Yeah, and I was glad to be there at the beginning, helping you come on board and actually persuading you at times to come on board because I knew you had the, the chops to do it, and it was quite remarkable, actually. Before we get in, by the way, that was an excellent presentation of the company. We could hang up right now and just like go on. But uh, there's lots more to cover here. Let me, let me ask you a little bit about your background because you cl- clearly, when I met you, you had a passion for food. You had a passion for doing the right things. You were immersed in it, and you tried several different, uh, uh, actually interesting companies you built um, in the space. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background because it really 
parlays into what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. So I, I, um, I actually started my career trading commodities and, uh, in that, in that world, specifically in coffee and cocoa. And, um, you know, my, my knowledge of food at that point was restricted to numbers on the screen. And, um, eventually, uh, went to work for one of my clients, which was Nestle, the largest food company in the world, managing the risk portfolio for the beverage division. Uh, and in that role, I, I actually, was forced to see firsthand the impact of my purchasing decisions. Um, spent a lot of time uh, at Origin uh, buying coffee and managing uh, grower relations. Um, and you know, when you realize that you're making decisions that affect the lives of so many people all over the planet, and you know, their the viability of of an industry is dependent on the decisions you're making. Uh, it, it's somewhat uh, humbling and. Um, it was also somewhat discouraging because my job was to buy things as cheaply as I possibly could. Uh, and those decisions were having a negative impact in many cases on people's lives at origin. So, um, you know, that is the way the business works. I, I get it. Um, and I had an opportunity at Nestle then to go on and manage a business. So to understand the other end of the supply chain, how could you market food to consumers in ways that, um, that could, uh, you know, really drive sales. And through those two experiences, I realized that, um, you know, we had sort of created a, a food system that was dislocating those two aspects of food manufacturing and food production uh, in ways that was having a very negative effect on the environment and on consumers in terms of their own health. So I went to left Nestle uh, and partnered with a guy named Bill Nyman to start a company, a brand called Nyman Ranch, which uh, was a natural meat company focused on um, originally it was a beef business, but I really focused on uh, the pork side of the operation and had the pleasure of working with a, a farmer in Iowa by the name of Paul Willis, who um, had a real vision for raising hogs sustainably uh, outdoors. And we, we worked on scaling up his vision to eventually um, support over 600 sustainable family farmers in Iowa and surrounding states uh, to produce um, pork in a uh, very unique kind of old school fashion. So no antibiotics, no hormones, no meat or animal byproducts in the feed, uh, raised outdoors on pasture or in deeply bedded pens, all with a focus on delivering the finest tasting meat in the world. And um, what was interesting was consumers really – that that message really resonated with consumers and they gravitated to the brand. Uh, and we were able to pay those growers 20% premiums to what they were getting in the market and also put in a floor price on the pricing model that we built with them that was above their cost of production. And that's a risk to you, isn't it, when you yep. do that? Yep, and it, and it was. And, and But we realized that you know without the supply base working you know in a long-term basis, you didn't have a business. So you know fundamentally, it was about how do you connect the two dots? So if you could explain to consumers exactly how this was happening and why the meat tasted so good, they in fact were happy to pay the price necessary to support that economic model. Um, so that was you know we, we did that over nine years, eventually sold the company, uh, and I started another company called Attune Foods focused on uh, digestive health um, through a number of products, including probiotics that I learned about through my 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 livestock uh, experience. But um, uh, we launched the world's first probiotic chocolate bars. Um, we launched and, and acquired a bunch of cereal brands focused on digestive health, again, in the natural and organic space. I uh, grew that business over seven years and eventually sold it to Post Holdings. Uh, and Attune became the natural food platform for Post. Um, and that's when, you know, I started to realize that the constraints on scaling these businesses was really supply constraints. So, you know, the growth of organic, uh, grain in the U S was limited. Yes, you could bring it in from outside of the U S, but there were questions about its, its viability or legitimacy as an organic right. product. 
Uh, and so that's when I, I ran I met you, Roland, and you know started talking about this idea of thinking, you know, could we bring institutional capital to the challenge and actually look to acquire farmland uh, at scale in the U.S. and begin a conversion process to more regeneratively grown foods. And I guess you know part and parcel to your background, and lo and behold, we kind of discovered something similarly that if you understood the value of the food and you could translate that to the consumer. Both sides would benefit. The farmer would benefit. The consumer would benefit. And everybody's more happy. More happy is a good word. But that was something that you had been practicing and talking about because of your whole fundamental background between trading and buying and then actually building a company. It's amazing. And the fit was phenomenal. We're going to get into how the story projects because I think the audience would love to hear how well it's gone and, and the challenges you faced as well building this next generation agricultural company, I think. Understanding value, marketing to consumer, a brand. I think that's still the message, right? You have a brand. Yep. Okay. And and delivering that value back all the way to the farm, which yep. most people don't do. And would you be say you're an anomaly out there doing this? Uh yeah, I think so. I mean, I think big, you know, scale has has worked against farmers by and large because they've lost their ability to brand on a broad basis. Um and you know, I think the it's not that farmers don't have the right idea and it's not that farmers don't um, have all of the the skills necessary to execute regenerative, regenerative production of, of food. Uh, the challenge is they're just not able to connect the dots any longer. Um, and what's happened is that at retail, there's been such massive consolidation um, as well as within big food companies that the purchasing power uh, is is asymmetrical and there's – Farmers, by and large, are not big enough to actually play effectively in that in that uh, discussion. So, um, you know, I think the opportunity now today is is really to think: okay, can you take those great farming talents, make them part of a more professionalized organization, and deploy it to achieve sort of the same ends that they would want to on a small scale, uh, and really be able to then cut through to end customers and retailers with a branded proposition that resonates with consumers, even in the simplest foods, which in the case of what we're growing now are really there's very little transformation happening between the time we harvest a blueberry and the time it gets to the store shelf. Um, you know, if you do that right and you did it in ways that were unique, you should be able to command a, a premium position, a premium price at shelf. Um, or at least differentiate the offering from what's out there at the broader commodity basis. So let's let's talk a little bit about the products you're talking about now because that's really important to understand for our listeners. So this is permanent crop. So why don't you define permanent crop for a second yep. and then find what part of permanent crop you're focused on. Great. So yeah, permanent crops generally are recognized as trees, bushes, and vines that have uh, a much longer useful life than uh, an, an annual crop. A row crop or an annual crop would be planted every year. You're making a decision in an annual crop, what I'm going to grow this year. Next year, you can make a different decision. In permanent crops, you don't have that luxury. You're actually capitalizing uh, the farm uh, with significant investment in a tree that will have potentially useful life of as long as – well, short as 20 years in some cases, but as long as 100 years in others. Uh, and so you're making a decision about where the consumer is going to be going in the future because wow. you're expecting to be in that business for a longer period of time than just the next year. That's a hard marketing challenge for anybody. It is very, it is very challenging. And the other thing in farming that this, this is, is obvious to anybody listening who's a farmer, but you have very few swings at the plate as a farmer. Basically, you know, if you're farming your whole life, you may have 50 times to actually try something different. And so that's even if you're in an annual crop basis. So, 
when you're thinking about how to run a farm business, you know, farmers by in general are become very risk averse for good reason, because if you make the wrong decision, you may lose the entire operation. So your One ten- bad year could cost your operation. Correct. So you tend to have farmers who have done something successfully one year and a year and another year, and they continue on with that same basic idea. There's very little variation. And so one of the real innovation opportunities that I think exists in farming, and, and I saw this in, at, you know, certainly in a livestock operation, I see it now in a permanent crop operation, is by bringing in data and information to help uh, drive more effective innovation. Um, we're now farming 20,000 acres in blueberries, citrus, table grapes, and hazelnuts uh, in California, Oregon, uh, and Australia. And we have data coming in off of all those operations that is for the benefit of all of those growers uh, and outside growers as well. So, you know, we think that data can make the industry better um, and it can help drive performance in ways that heretofore really hasn't been happening. In fact, you know, most of the most of the farms that we end up acquiring are from families that have been farming those operations for three or four generations, and they don't have anyone left in the family to actually to whom they can turn over management. And so they're looking to us to carry on and improve the legacy. Um, it's uh, and for us, it's a real privilege to be able to come in and do it, and not only capture some of their historical knowledge, but then translate it into a more uh, you know sort of modern, professionalized operation. And, and do you find that a hard sell or these families, you know, don't want some institutional coming in there and buy, even though you're small and farm, you know, pro farm everything, it's still hard, isn't it for them? I think it's very hard. And I, I you know, you can't begin to uh, underestimate the value of, of, of heritage. I mean, if your family has been living on a piece of ground for three or four generations, um, it is not a small consideration to move away from that or to sell it to somebody. Um, and so we certainly take that responsibility seriously. And I think, you know, Tom Evan Ellis, uh, my partner, has been farming for the better part of 40 years. And so uh, it really helps to have sort of farm DNA in our organization, not just be an institutional buyer who's coming in to buy the property and lease it to somebody else to operate. We actually have taken a very different approach where we actually – we acquire the property, but then we run it ourselves. We've built out an operating company that now has over 400 employees who are mostly um, former employees of the families from whom we've acquired these operations. Uh, but we've now um, inculcated them in a culture of excellence, of accountability, of transparency and stewardship, the four values that we're running for the organization that carry through from the irrigating team all the way to the investment team. Uh, and uh, part of that is saying, you know, there's a there's the AC way that is the way we operate, and it's different from the way a family would operate. And so that transition is always uh, challenging, but it's certainly, we think, quite um, fulfilling to folks who are able to uh, successfully think about farming in slightly in new, new and different ways. And it's been really, really, uh, you know, I think successful and enjoyable for people too who have been able to make it through that transition. Uh, but it's a big part of what we're doing. And, and you know, we still see today fewer than 25% of family farms are passed on to the next generation to actually operate it. Um, so what percent was that? Less than 25. 25. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the other 75% of farms that are sold, uh, for the most part are being sold either, either sold to somebody to lease out or sold to, uh, actually 
to a sub, to a child to then own and lease, but not actually operate. Okay. Um, but it's a relatively illiquid asset class, less than probably. Uh, it's estimated about one percent of farmland really transitions, really transacts in a in a real transaction per okay. year. Well, uh, just a reminder, audience, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and I'm speaking with Rob Hurlbut, Managing Director at Agricultural Capital, where he leads agricultural capital sustainable agricultural strategies. If you have any questions, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let's talk a little bit about the four products you're now growing. And you said you have to make this 15, 20-year, maybe 100-year decision here on table grape citrus, which I think is oranges if you yep. will um as well as blueberries and then hazelnuts okay which you are hearing more and more about but not still not nothing compared to almonds there but what made you choose these four products as saying that that's where i really want to admit my 20-year bet on yeah good, good good question i mean first and foremost was you know we we knew the consumers were actually very interested in buying more of these four crops uh and uh so, so that's the sort of the consumer lens. So, if we're looking at demand, you know, growth and demand on those crops over time has recently and, and forecasted is very strong. Blueberries growing in low double digits over the last ten years. Um, uh, citrus depends which part of the citrus market you're looking at, but in particular, we focused on uh, sort of the specialty segment uh, as well as the navel orange business, which is sort of a barbell approach to the industry. One side is, is growing quite quickly. The other side is very stable and provides consistent uh, and reliable cash flows. Uh, in hazelnuts, um, we saw the trend in terms of protein and, and the nut complex broadly, uh, but felt that hazelnuts had not really benefited yet from the uh, great almond craze. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, as the folks like Ferraro Rocher, who produced Nutella, among other things, began to uh, sort of address confection opportunities globally, it was very clear that their need uh, and confectionery demand for hazelnuts was growing. And, and unfortunately, most of the supply there was coming out of Turkey, where there are a whole number of labor and, and quality-related issues that we think are going to continue to pause, cause problems. So, um, so hazelnuts were a focus. And then finally, table grapes. Uh, which are you know continue to, to grow both uh, domestically as well as internationally. So um, we we that's where we started. That's how how we the focus uh, came on those crops. Obviously, we, the first focus was permanent crops, as you mentioned before. Within permanent crops, we felt those four had very strong characteristics. Uh, and then uh, finally, from a from a demand standpoint, or excuse me, from a processing standpoint, we felt that we could bring uh, a lot of value to the consumer by owning and operating the processing side of the equation. So investing in packing operations and sorting operations and in freezing operations to determine, deliver uh, the final finished product quality to the consumer. Uh, and so we've made investments up and down that supply chain. And do you go as far as branding now? Yes. Yeah, so, so ultimately, you know, you can do all this great work on the ground and you can produce a wonderful product and uh, conserve water and build habitat for native pollinators and, you know, use weed matting and not spray pesticides. But if you don't tell consumers about it, you're missing out on some of the greatest value that is out there. So um, we've started now that um, we are in production, active production on all four of those crop types to begin to implement a, a branding strategy that um, is perhaps most well-evolved in one of our, one of our products is called the Sumo Citrus 
which is a uh, very large, easy-peeling mandarin orange that has a big knob on the top. We just finished the... Uh, That's a massive orange, as it, I remember, is a, right? It is big, and it's... it's like a bowling ball almost. No, we, we, We'd like them to get that big, but they, they aren't there yet. Um, so it's a... It, it, it's a Grapefruit uh, size, really. It, it is, yeah. And it sells for a, a real premium price, three ninety nine a pound compared to you know, sort of 75 cents a pound for a navel orange. Uh, and that business is growing, you know, double digit growth year over year. Um, we've been very careful about how we manage the growth of that, of the brand. Um, we've protected the brand on a global basis, uh, and we continue to, uh, build supply behind it, um, both in the U S as well as in Australia and, uh, customers and consumers have just been thrilled with the product. So, um, it's, it's a great example of, of, Taking the the paradigm of consumer focus and translating it into an old line business. So, if you go to the consumer first and you think about what is it they're looking for, they're looking for convenience, which means in, in citrus easy peeling. They're looking for uh, quality, which means really great taste, uh, and they're looking for value, which in this case m- means a very high price. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we've identified, you know, at this point that to, to this particular product to actually deliver on the convenience aspect and the quality aspect, yeah. it's very expensive to grow. So we understand that. And of course, then we need to position the product with consumers who can afford that, who can afford that orange. Um, it's been, uh, that as opposed to a normal navel, what's the price difference? Right. Time? So a navel orange would be about 75 cents a pound. Wow. And this is almost $4 a pound at shelf. Wow. So, um, now, it may not be an orange that is going to be consumed at the same frequency as a navel orange, um, but it is a truly delightful experience that consumers are, are you know, value and are, are willing to buy more and more of. So um, for us, part of it is rethinking the orange proposition, right? It's not all about volume. Uh, it's not just dumping product in the market. It's actually about talking to consumers about the value proposition, um, having them understand that you know this is a this is a, a small gift in a package, you know it's that is nature's splendor. I mean, it's just an absolute incredible eating experience. So, um, unfortunately, the season has just come to an end. Uh, we start harvesting those in uh, late December, uh, and the last harvest is typically uh, in the month of March. Uh, this year was the season was a little bit later, so we just finished up um, uh, mid-April, and uh, it is great. So we we've seen, you know, that's a that's a brand and a business that is all you've know, been very focused on the consumer, and we continue to be very careful about where we extend the brand, mm-hmm. how quickly we're growing it. Uh, we don't want to overly saturate the market and drive drive value down because eventually you could quickly push the price consumers are willing to pay below uh, the cost of what it takes to produce. So. Um, you know, being really thoughtful around that relationship is a very different way than the industry typically addresses these opportunities. Right. Normally, you know, the goal for for food producers is make as many of, of them as you can as cheaply as possible. Quality is not a driver. Yeah. You know, convenience is typically not a big driver. Uh, and, and certainly uh, price is. So so how does that, I mean, I'll challenge you just a little bit, not on that product, but on the notion that it's a very high-end product for a very high-end consumer that can afford that, right? Or yeah, me and my buddy can split one and divide it in half, whatever. But there's there's still this idea of organic food for the masses that's still suffering out there in a little bit. I just want you to segue to that just a little bit because yeah. part of your DNA, I think your personal DNA is how do we make organic food 
better and cheaper for the masses, for everybody. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I talked about Sumos because it was a, it's the brand that we've developed the most, but um, our mission is to grow access to healthier and better food. Um, and that means, you know, we, we believe we can take costs out of the equation of getting to organic. Um, perhaps the, the, the example there that I'd point to most directly is um, we have um, really focused on scaling up organic blueberry production. Um, you know, one day Walmart did a, did a survey uh, about three years ago with their shoppers um, that showed that 92% of Walmart shoppers would prefer to buy organic if it were the same price as conventional. Only 92. I don't know okay. where the other 8% yeah, were going, really. but, but, but still to me, that's the bogey, right? If you want to, if you really want to have environmental impact and you want to take uh, as many chemicals out of the food supply chain as possible, um, if you can do things to narrow that gap on pricing, yeah. um, then you're going to be able to achieve that end. You can buy market share very, very easily. So um, our focus then has been, okay, how do we use scale uh, and technology to bring costs out of that out of that equation? Uh, and we've developed, um, you know, thousands of acres of organic blueberry production in the U.S. Um, that are now being mechanically harvested instead of manually harvested, which reduces your cost considerably, uh, that are being sorted in a high-tech uh, facility that we've constructed that actually optically sorts every blueberry uh, to detect any micro-bruising that might be present on the fruit and removes that from the supply chain and directs that into the frozen market where it can be uh, you know, protected immediately. The fresh fruit, therefore, meets or exceeds customer expectations for firmness and without bruising, and, and we can get that done regularly and mechanically. That's incredible. That machinery exists now. Huh? It does, wow. which is, um, you know, again, kind of investing that innovation. It's not inexpensive to buy that machinery, right. but if you can use it at scale, it can pay very you can pay for itself and, and can be quite efficient. So our focus has been really to, to try to unlock that value with a goal of you know, narrowing that gap between historical price premiums on organic and where conventional is. Um, it's uh, funny about blueberries because I see when I go to the market, I always price out uh, some of your blueberries, actually. I see those and other blueberries, organic particularly. But the ranges for the little carton, okay, little plastic shell can range on the cheap season four ninety nine to the high season nine ninety nine kind of thing. And, you know, sorry, the low season when there's no blueberries out there. Where the, because that's seasonal because of the, where they're growing or where they're coming from or why is that? Yeah, so blueberries um, because the demand globally has grown so quickly. North America is still the largest consumer of blueberries, but um, we're seeing growth all over the world. Uh, and so production has moved out of North America where it's historically based uh, into Chile, which is now a fairly mature producer, and Peru, uh, as well as um, you're even seeing some growth now in Australia. Um, and in Europe, but to a lesser degree. Uh, and what's happening is, um, you know, consumers have an expectation now that fruit is going to be available. Every kind of fruit is going to be available in their store 52 weeks a year. Wow. Now, now the problem is it doesn't always have the same quality 52 yeah. weeks of the year. Or so, taste. Or taste. So you can imagine if you have a, a blueberry that has been sitting on a, on a vessel from Peru uh, for 21 days, it arrives at the store the, that is just not going to be the same eating experience as a piece of fruit that was harvested three days ago uh, and is on the store shelf. So um, I think the industry is in a really interesting place right now where uh, there's a real need to differentiate on quality. Um, 
importantly, as I look at the industry, you think about uh, you walk into a store shelf and you see a stack of blueberries. There may be two or three different brands present, but they're all at the same price. Yeah. Which tells me the brands have no value. There's nobody's differentiating on on quality or price or any consumer attribute. They're just saying it's a blueberry. Yeah. Which is a real problem. So real opportunity the way we think about it. There's a you start to rethink this industry and think about well, what are the attributes? I and mean, we're growing eighteen different varieties of blueberries on our farms right now. Eighteen varieties. Eighteen. And How many varieties are there of blueberries? There's Probably, probably well over a hundred globally. And no one begins to understand that. Yeah, I know there are big ones and there are smaller ones, and, and I know them a little more than that. But that's what people see. Yeah, which uh, is interesting because you think of the way the apple industry has really approached what was a homogenized red delicious apple, and now you know you'd be hard pressed to find a delicious apple in your store. You, right? There's like seventeen different. Ver- Last year, I think. Uh, well. I can't remember the number in, in apples. It's not an industry we're in, but you know, hundreds of varieties are marketed in the in the U.S. And yeah. um, uh, last year, another example, there were 92 varieties of table grapes grown in in California last year. Oh, wow. um, they were all marketed as red, green, or 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 black grapes. I mean, okay. Well, on that note, we need to take a break here. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is Rob Hurlbut from Agricultural Capital. Stay with us as we continue our conversation about growing sustainable organic food. We're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures. This is Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. My guest this hour is Rob Hurlbut, Managing Director at Agricultural Capital, where he leads agricultural capital, sustainable agricultural strategies. And where we left off, we were just talking about how hard it is to grow organic sometimes. And actually, we're going to get into that right now because organic is a very specialty art. And people think of this as the young hippie guy who started an organic farm and couldn't grow enough food, but he could feed his family and then some other people. And the big institutional agricultural firms thought this is never going to feed the planet. There was this big debate many years ago. It still goes on today. And yet, as we see these new techniques come to roost and organic agriculture catching up as demand is accelerating now because people realize that chemicalized food is terrible for you. In fact, we haven't even mentioned that, what a blueberry, organic blueberry is like and what a industrial blueberry is like. It's really interesting. You'd probably never eat industrial blueberry again if once you know how they're grown, actually, which is a fearful thing. But I'd really like Rob to spend some time on what agricultural capital does on their farms, which makes them special. And once in a while, throw in a little jab because I think it's important to hear the, the distinction and differences. Yeah. I mean, it's um, – we we – we don't see, you know, big ag, ourselves included, um, displacing small farmers. In fact, if that happens, I think we, we've missed the we've missed the target. Um, I think we can be very complementary to smaller farmers. So, um, small organic farmers um, are doing incredibly great work. There's been notably, I think, some of the greatest innovations in farming have happened on small organic farms because people are doing things differently. Uh, and to be a good organic farmer, fundamentally, you have to be a great biologist. I mean, you've, you've, you have very few tools to work with. You're not relying on a chemical toolbox to solve your problems. And therefore, you have to be much more aware of what's happening in an ecosystem and really be thoughtful around, um, you know, what kind of biological solutions you can come up with to address a problem, a pest pressure, a irrigation challenge, a, a weed challenge. I mean, there's 
they're, they're endless. And when you talk to a great organic farmer, it is truly amazing. I mean, I have, I have just a, a, an unending respect for, you know, organic farmers because of that. Um, one of the things I've always thought is if you could sell organic in a 50 gallon drum, you know, you'd be the richest man on the planet because one thing we as Americans, I think are, are sort of apt to do is if you can pay for a solution, that's really that's the way that's just very easy to do. You know, we're we're by Americans. I think we we tend to be great marketers, and we can sell you anything. The problem with organic is you're really not selling anything. You're selling an absence of things, right? And, and therefore, and therefore, you know, the motivation to be an organic farmer has to be something that is really coming from a a, a motivation that is the deeper, perhaps personally motivated, around you know doing something that is more based on an environmental outcome. Uh, not just on you know a, a monetary outcome. Uh, so can we just segue there for a moment because what Rob's touching on is really important. And the industrial ag system is also you know it was set out to feed the world. It set out with the NPK, okay, the whole fertilization for our audience of fertilizer to feed the world, and that was the intention. However, with these fertilizers come pesticides, okay. With these fertilizers come algae blooms and killing of insects and killing of the soil, making it inert, causing you know dead rivers, dead for the Gulf stream being dead you know as well and this is all an outcome of something accidental actually it was never intended to happen but it does happen and the more you accelerate food production the more this tends to happen so there's this counter trend of okay how do we fix this thing but the second part of this is the food you're eating and i don't want you to touch on this because i remember going to the field of blueberries try to eat them off the vine from an industrial egg and that's not necessarily healthy you better wash that food thoroughly and even then you know it's going to be impregnated on the food as well so there are issues with that. And so the, from a heart-centered point of view, which is where mostly organic farmers come from as well, is we know we need better food for ourselves internally and we know the environment needs better. And I think that's the basis which you kind of are passionate about and your whole team is. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think um, when General Mills bought Cascadian Farms, which was the first big organic acquisition that happened probably 15 years ago or more, I can't remember, wow, okay. it was a long time ago. The, the the thing that folks at Mills realized uh, was that consumers were buying organic not to save the planet but to save themselves. There was a very clear health driver behind consumers' intent to purchase organic, um, which is why organic, you know, sort of the main entry point for organic for consumers is typically when they have kids. When consumers have kids, they start feeding their kids organically. So, yeah. you know, it's it's sort of – Makes sense. That's the that's the the thing that's making it move, and that's why organic is growing. You know, still uh, low double digits year over year. Um, it's now represents over six percent of our food supply uh, in terms of total U.S. food sales, uh, and I think will continue for a long time. Um, the good news is, I think the the incentive to move into more regenerative modes of food production are also becoming more apparent uh, for uh, all kinds of farmers as well. So you say regenerative again. Let's let's define regenerative yeah. farming. Yeah. So example. so I think um, organic is a USDA standard. Uh, it has very uh, it's a very regulated standard, and which is why it's I think as powerful as it is in the marketplace. Uh, and there's a whole host of uh, it, it is not a test procedure, but it is a process, an organic process. And, um, you know, there's a three-year transition period to go from conventional to organic. Uh, and you're required to maintain very strict records compliance to demonstrate that you were, in fact, adhering to the organic policies. Um, the USDA does a great job establishing that framework. And then there are independent licensed agencies that go out and certify organics, organic right. producers. 
Um, and it takes about three years to convert a farm from non-organic to organic, if I remember. That's correct. Three-year three year transition. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you incur the cost of – a higher cost of farming organically for three years without having any premium price, price on your sales. Yeah. So – um, which is one of the reasons I think it's been a little sticky. So actually two years ago, the USDA did authorize a transitional certification. So, uh, and some retailers are beginning to embrace that. Um, Wegmans in particular has been very uh, proactive in kind of working with farmers to do a transit, to encourage farmers to make the transition. Uh, and some big food manufacturers, Kellogg's most notably, have promoted transitional opportunities. Kashi launched a transitional cereal. Okay. So, you know, I think that's helpful to give reduce the risk for farmers in saying, okay, I'm going to go grow organic I can get wheat there now. Somehow. Yeah. I can I can, you know, somehow pay for that that experience. Um but I think to your point, you know, consumers said, yes, I want I want less, but there's also other ways to get there. So when we talk about regenerative, we're trying to take a more holistic view because organic on its own may not be the ultimate solution. In some cases, organic production may result in a food in a in a product that costs so much money that nobody can afford it. Um, or it may be that, you know, the best way to treat a pest pressure would be with a very small chemical application that is not organic, but invalidates your organic certification. But actually your use of you're still allowed – there are organic pesticides that you can use that are, you know, or, that are approved for organic use. But sometimes you may have a choice of putting on you know, 10 times as much of that organic pesticide as you know, some alternate non-organic solution. You know, as, a, as, a, as a regenerative you – know, if you think about regenerative, you think about the impact more broadly of you know, what do those 10 times as much organic pesticide do – versus a different application. That's a, a consideration that might go into the into the decision whether or not to be organic. Now by and large, you know, if we had a choice, we would absolutely convert all of our acreage to organic. Right now we have about a little over 4,000 acres in transition to organic. And um, we, we, we look to continue to do more. We're actually starting to transition a lot of our table grapes. Uh, and that'll be um, – we have about 7,000 acres of production now and we'll be transitioning uh, over the next several years. So um, we think it still makes sense and by and large because consumers understand the benefit and the benefits really are genuine at the farm gate. Um, but there are other things you can do that we think about um, that are equally important when you're thinking about regenerative production. So um, you know, a couple of examples are you know, deploying the use of weed matting. So weed matting is a – uh, fabric that you lay out over the ground that suppresses weed growth. It's quite expensive, uh, and you could instead pay somebody to hoe the ground, which is one approach. Or if you want to take a chemical approach, you'd use some chemical herbicide right. um, like Roundup and spray that to, kill, to keep the weed pressure down so that the plants that you want to grow uh, would grow more vigorously. Now, we don't think that's a good solution, so we actually think putting weed matting down uh, is a great uh, a great approach. It has about a four to five year life, uh, and it is expensive. But if you do it well, you don't have to spray any chemicals, and it will suppress most of the weed growth. You also use a cover crop sometimes, don't you? In between your yep, uh, I mean cover cropping is a we we like to track another regenerative concept is to certainly think about um, soil health uh, and a lot of different ways to measure soil health. But but certainly one of the great ways is by figuring out ways to. Uh, use cover crops that fix nitrogen in the soil uh, instead of applying uh, fertilizer or minimizing the use of, of applied fertilizer. So, 
you know, those are things that it takes a lot more thought. It may take a little bit of effort, but, uh, you know, it's not pushing the easy button of the, of the fertilizer uh, application, but it's instead thinking about, okay, what is this clover crop going to do for us? What is, uh, you know, what might work better than clover this year? Or what can we, you know, experiment with in order to, you know, really look at developing a more uh, vigorous soil health? So, uh, and over time, our view is, and this certainly won't show up in year one, but by the end of our of our fund life, when we have to uh, consider uh, new ownership for a farm, um, if that soil is truly more healthy, has more more activity in it, has a, a better soil biome, uh, it's likely that the yield from the crop grown on that farm, whether it's blueberries, whether it's citrus, whether it's table grapes or hazelnuts, will be better than an adjacent farm that didn't have that focus on growing unimproving soil health. And so it will be more productive. It will have better cash flow and we should be able to get paid for that. So that's, that's the long-term thesis. Um, near term though, there's a whole range of other things that we're doing that I think are, are equally exciting uh, in the way of, uh, of regenerative. I remember the pollinator thing. Of yeah, no, I, I was talking about that, that which, which to me has been a, a really great project. We experimented, we actually um, started working with the Xerxes Society, which is an organization uh, dedicated to focusing on pollinator, figuring out how to save pollinator habitat. Um, and as many of the listeners may know, bees play a huge role in our food production. Um, pollinating crops like almonds and blueberries in order to um, uh, have them produce fruit or nuts. So um, colony collapse disorder uh, has been taking place for any number of reasons. It's still not clear, but it certainly seems to be based on a lot of the pesticide use. And um, what we've realized is, you know, we can, as an owner of farms, play a role not just in, um, you know, acquiring bees to pollinate our crops, but more importantly, developing habitat for native pollinators uh, that include, you know, bumblebees, butterflies, hummingbirds, uh, pollinators that will reside on that property on a year-round basis. But if, if they're just eating pollen from blueberries, which only bloom in the spring, what do they do? Yes, the, the rest of the year they won't survive. So you have to build habitat. So we've actually planted habitat for these pollinators to live on a year-round basis. Um, and one of the side effects that we've seen, which is really exciting, uh, gets stung a lot. No, no, well, <laughs> no is, is that, um, uh, native bees, uh, or excuse me, uh, European bees only come out of their hive when the temperatures are sufficiently warm. I think it's, I, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not the farmer. So I think it's under 53 degrees. They'd stay in the hive. They don't come out. And so when you have an especially cold spring, like we did last year in Oregon, um, the native pollinators are out working really hard, even when the temperatures are in the low 50s, while the European bees are not doing anything. So <laughs> it's like, kind of like the French and the Italians, you know, kind of <laughs> hang out a little more, drink some wine, stay home a little bit. No, I'm only kidding. Um, this is Barrier Ventures on Business Radio, although it wouldn't seem it. Sirius XM 132. You're, I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. I'm speaking with Rob Hurlbrut from Agricultural Capital. If you have any questions, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 7866. So sorry about interrupting you about the Italian bees. And all no, that. not at all. So, the, so those, those bees, um, it, so 
what we saw last year was we had, um, and, and obviously this is one data point, so we don't have enough data yet to draw real conclusions, but we, University of Michigan had done a study with native pollinators demonstrating that they could be really beneficial to yield, which is what got us thinking about this originally. So we said, great, let's, let's look into this. The folks at the Xerxes Society helped us figure out what plants to plant. We put them in the ground. The, the native pollinators have, in fact, taken up residency. They're working the, they're working the fields. And last year we had um, better yields than we expected by a long shot. Wow! Um, which you know I can't say it's entirely yet because of the pollinators, but it was a great indicator. Uh, and we're also doing a lot to you know just improve the ecosystem uh, more broadly. And um, actually, the state of California has now um, uh, Wood Turner, who leads our uh, sustainability work. Uh, Wood has. Uh, been working with the state of California, and they're actually funding uh, the program that we're going to roll this out on farms in California as well. So it's really exciting to see, you know, just broad recognition that this is a critical ecosystem service that through, you know, practices that we've adopted at, on a commercial scale, uh, we've done some serious damage. Uh, and it's just one step that we hope, you know, others can follow and say, hey, great, you know, you can build this habitat, you can reduce your expense on pollinator services. And you can potentially increase your yields. So yeah. who who in farming wouldn't want to do that? Right. Now That's the only problem right. is if you're going to spray a lot of chemicals that are going to kill that habitat, not so not so successful. Well, let's so, talk a little <laughs> bit about that because there's lots of studies out. There was a recent one that almost all cereals have glyphosate in them, and it's like even your organic cereals have some fraction of it because you just can't get rid. It's in the system now, and it's just a horrific thing. Even wines have all glyphosate in them, and this is incredible. You know? Yeah. And how, is this influencing your decisions here? Or are you seeing this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, obviously the chemical has been in use for a long time. And um, uh, there's been an active debate on its safety. This but, is Roundup for everybody who doesn't yeah. know it. Made by Monsanto, who's under trial in a lot of places right now for this issue. Yeah, and, and, and most recently there have been two California rulings that have ruled in favor of, uh, of litigants against Monsanto for health effects. So um, – you know, our, I think I think it's a it's a the point you raised earlier. You know, everybody came at it with the best intent, I believe, yeah. fundamentally, of saying, yeah. "Hey, uh, we can grow more food more cheaply uh, for the betterment of mankind." Um, some people also realize there's a great way to sell, you know, razors and, and razor blades, which is the Monsanto business model, which you know you have to respect them from a from a business standpoint. But um, there was, I think, a fairly uh, you know, significant disregard for the potential impacts, and I think that is now coming back to, to roost. And um, but to me, the, the the if you stayed laser focused on the consumer, um, the non-GMO project seven years ago came out and really did a lot of good work with consumers. Almost every consumer, if given the choice, would pre- would prefer to have food that was not genetically modified. And genetic modification, just for listeners' benefit, was was established as a means of enabling use of Roundup. So you can you can genetically modify a crop to not be susceptible to the pesticide, and then you can spray the pesticide rampantly, killing everything except that crop. So that idea, uh, as a business, sounds sounds great, right? And 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 Monsanto made a lot of money from that. Uh, but consumers were never consulted on the on the issue, and so when you put yourself in the seat of being a food business, which what is what farmers are, but most farmers don't consider themselves. If you're in the food business, you better talk to your consumers and find out: Do they want that? Is that something they actually want in their food? And if not, then you better figure out a way to do it without it. 
And so, you know, when in the end of the day, I think that's really, you know, that that eye towards the consumer and, you know, being a, a good marketer uh, is really at the core of thinking about what what a good food company would look like. And, and we think of ourselves as very much of a food company. So let's let's talk about your food companies. We haven't even touched on the, some of the metrics that you're following because when we started out together looking at this vision we created, and I think it's it's a beautiful outcome that's happened, but you have grown tremendously since you know five, six years ago when this whole concept was laid out and first fund was raised, and you are actually a fund firm, okay? Um, can you talk about that a little bit, where you are and how big you've grown that way? Yeah, sure. So um, we are just now um, getting to the end of investing our second fund. So we have about $800 million under management. We're farming 20,000 acres uh, and operating a uh, half dozen uh, food processing assets um, across the four crop types that we've discussed. So um, I think we've had a lot of success. And I think one of the you know, one of the exciting aspects of, of being a, uh, an investment firm and raising capital from institutions, which in, in our case have been primarily state pensions and European pensions. So, you know, the likes of uh, state of Washington, state of Maine, state of New Mexico, um, they're public pensions. And so, you know, it's in the public record as investors. But these investors, by and large, have very long time horizons in their view. Um, I, I'll never forget uh, sitting before one of the chief investment officers telling me that they're investing with an 80-year time frame. And their view of sustainability was very focused on that 80-year time frame. And so their expectation of returns was not just, you know, what is the internal rate of return that you're going to give me on this fund? But they were very much thinking about what is the state of the planet over the next 80 years? Because they're hiring a teacher today who's going to come in and teach in their school system who's going to retire in 40 years and then expect to collect a pension for the next 40 years, if the planet doesn't prove to be very habitable for the balance of those 40 years, you know, they consider that part of their responsibility, which I thought was you know, very eye-opening, that there's somebody who's thinking with that kind of really long time frame on their investment which was certainly, you know, not something I hear every day. Right. And so that was a state pension. fund. That was a state pension fund. Oh, it sounds yeah. like an indigenous tribe, actually. <laughs> they actually think that long term, too. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting because when I think about what is the role of a family farmer from whom we're buying these farms, yeah. they have they have thought about operating that farm generationally as well. Because yeah. the intent has always been, look, I'm stewarding this land for a long time. Yeah. Now they're at a point where there's no one left in the family to do that. I actually feel like what we're doing in, in is sort of there's a very nice synergy to this idea of taking long-term public capital and putting it back into the ground mm -hmm. and actually stewarding it in a way that is consistent with the way that may have been done otherwise. Right. So, um, you know that 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 kind of you know when we talk about um, you know look they're they're firefighters and teachers uh, you know whose pension we are stewarding. We're putting that into farms. We're farming it in a way that I think is consistent with the way they would want it done. And, and by the way, when you think of regenerative and you think about sustainability, all of the elements of the way we're farming are important to those investors as well. So they, there's risks that they conceive of that you know, we can help mitigate because we're trying to put a consistent philosophy in place across the board. So um, anyway, it's a, very, it's a very interesting circle to the investment theme. So, so, so your your duration is um, your fund life is how long? So the fund is a ten year fund plus two year uh, extensions. Okay. Uh, and then um, 
So what happens at the end of this period of time? What have you th- you just you alluded to a little bit in the conversation about what happens? I mean, here you're long term. These are twenty to fifty year crops, or even longer yeah. sometimes. Uh, what are you going to do? So I think that there'll be a number of of, of opportunities. Uh, I think there's one is keep it uh, in in ownership of the financial institution and continue to manage it. Um, that's one outcome. Uh, another outcome might be to sell an entire vertical to a strategic. So sell an entire blueberry vertical of farms, blueberry processing assets, and blueberry brands. Yeah. Um, I would continue managing it as well. And, and you could do that as well. Um, you know. Yeah. But for a different owner, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Because what you're doing is really benefiting everybody in that sense. Well, and. and and to make sure the consumer understands that, we'll ensure that it's continues to get managed that way. The consumer is not going to value something that isn't right. managed in a regenerative format. And do you think your your existing investors might want to play again? Might want to keep yeah. going because if they are long term, that would like be a that, great outcome. Yeah, no, because it's such a wonderful, valuable asset, and we know that food is not going to get any less expensive than it is. Okay, it's going to go up. And there was something we didn't talk about, which you and I, I think, in the past, have talked about this correlation or reverse correlation between food and health. You know, the cost of healthcare has just gone skyrocketing. The cost of food went the other way and during this period. And look what we've done. We've traded off good food for bad health. You yeah. know, that, that's a shame. And you want to reverse that. I remember you saying that specifically. That's yeah. part of your mission, yeah. which I think is wonderful. And so let, let's recap a little bit because I think it's important to hear that. So the idea is regenerative to sustainable to actually organic. Okay, all those are part and parcel to your vision. You want to be good to the farmer that you're acquiring the farm or partnering with or somehow incorporating his labor force into your structure so they can benefit from that. That's awesome. And deliver a product to consumers that they actually like, which is awesome. So Rob, to be able to reach you, where can people uh, find more about the company and what you're doing? So our website is, is agriculturecapital.com. Very straightforward. Uh, Not the most creative name for a firm on the planet, but uh, one that we think and and happy to, to, visit there and there are links to get in touch with us. So, okay. Yep. Well, I'm sure everybody will be doing that after this conversation. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're out of town, but we've been speaking this out with Rob Hurlbut from Agricultural Capital. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, where our listeners can find you online, which is great, and I'm sure that uh, they will do that. Uh, just ahead is David Parker, founder and CEO of New Rubber Technologies, an important company addressing environmental issue of rubber recycling. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and you'll listen to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Roland Vandermeer. Welcome back to Sirius XM Bay Area Ventures, live from the campus of Wharton in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. On today's show, we're talking about money that matters, which is really about people that are making a difference, either investors or CEOs that are building companies and investing in things that really have to change the paradigm that we're in right now. We can go into that later. However, if you have any question, please give us a call, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm joined now in the studio with David Parker, founder and CEO of New Rubber Technologies. David, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we kick this off with, real quick, a two-minute explanation, you know, your elevator pitch of New Rubber Technologies. Well, we're a business that's looking to solve the problem of end-of-life rubber which is uh, annually about a five, excuse me, $500 trillion market. Uh, to give you a frame of reference, there are about 300 million tires that come off cars every year, which are looking for a home in terms of reuse. Those numbers are staggering. 
They are staggering, and they're they're a little bit difficult to conceive of. Official statistics say that about half of that number is recycled, but within that definition of recycling is actually burning the tires as fuel. There's a lot of carbon content in these tires, so that's not a particularly productive way to reuse tires. So our business is all about uh, finding high-value uh, economic, environmentally friendly uses for those materials, and there are many uses for the material. Okay, so you have this incredible source of rubber. It's an incredibly large market, and you're taking this rubber, and you said tires, but it's also other forms of rubber that you're taking in, right? That's exactly right. Uh, tires are about half the waste stream. The other half is uh, various forms of industrial waste, for which there isn't a analogous uh, waste collection stream as there is in some states in the U.S. for tires. That being said, there, many of these industrial rubbers have a very high value and even greater utility than some of the rubbers that go into tires. And for that reason, we as a company are very interested in those and privately uh, contract with individual producers in one of two different ways, either as... Uh, what we call closed-loop recyclers, uh, processing the material and returning it to those manufacturers so that they can reuse the material in their own production processes. So effectively, what they're doing is they're recycling their production scrap. And then the other modality is um, actually repurposing that same material for a different different use. Okay. All right. So, so – let me understand. So you have a physical plant that you build, um, and you take in various sorts of rubbers, not just tires. And tires, I think, have a real issue with the metal and tires and all that. That's hard to get out of. Do you do that as well? We have the capability to do it, right. but it's not a very value-added part of uh, the food chain, if you will. So we actually purchase our crumb waste in a granulated form. We let Crumbs somebody else do that hard work. And then what do you do to this crumb waste uh, rubber? What do you we do something that's called devulcanization, which is the reversal of the process of vulcanization. And vulcanization is what Charles Goodyear stumbled across uh, all those years ago. And what he discovered is that once you impregnate rubber with sulfur or some curing uh, catalyst like that, you turn rubber, which is otherwise a super viscous liquid, actually, in its raw form, and you turn it into a useful functional material that you and I conceive of in the, the sorts of products that we see every does day. Does rubber still come from the rubber tree? It does. Um, about half of all rubber comes from trees, predominantly Asia, almost exclusively Asia, which is a real issue if you think about it from a North American context in terms of dependency on, on strategic sources. And the other half of rubber is synthetic, which means it is made in a petrochemical plant from hydrocarbons. Okay. Okay. So half and half. Yeah. All right, so they vulcanized rubber, which I remember studying that in chemistry in high school. Okay, they talked about that. And devulcanization means taking out the sulfur? Taking out. You don't actually take the sulfur out, but uh, to perhaps ex explain it, I'll make the differentiation between rubber and plastic. Plastic will melt at temperature. So you can take used plastic and take it above its glass transition temperature, turn it into a liquid, pour it into a different sort of mold, the shape and Repurpose. function of which that you're you're looking to achieve, and thus from a chemistry perspective, it's not very difficult. Rubber, on the other hand, once these sulfur crosslinks, typically sulfur is the curing agent, are created, it's very difficult to unwind those crosslinks. 
But that is something that we can do, not wholly and completely, but almost uh, sufficiently to address a vast swath of the market, particularly applications that are using rubber in in static ways. And the amount of virgin rubber that we can replace depends on the challenge in the application that we're looking to address. So at one end of the continuum, if you think about a car tire as being the most dynamic and and um, difficult application because of the different stresses and strains that are put on a tire as it goes around a corner and needs to grip and needs to accelerate and needs to brake and all those sorts of things versus something that like a mat just lies on the ground and has a static function mm-hmm. but can be of high value because of its UV resistance, its grease resistance, its oil resistance, what have you. Depending on which end of those two ends of the spectrum we're addressing, we can replace anywhere from at the one end, 100%. And from a technical perspective, we don't sell into tires today. It's not a market that we've chosen to focus on just because there are easier things to do given all of the testing and the, 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 the time that's associated with breaking into the tire market. I, I often flippantly say that uh, if you've got uh, five years and a very good sense of humor, it's a place to focus. Ultimately, we'll get there, but it's not where we're, we're aimed at first. Uh, but from a technical perspective, we know that we can replace uh, on the order of 15 to 20% of the virgin content of a pneumatic tire, which means an air-filled tire. Once you go to off-road tires or solid tires, the amount that we can replace actually gets much, much higher than that. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. So, so you're, you've, let's give us a little background here so we, before we go deeper into uh, the, the company as we stand right now. But your background for the audience, so explain how you got here and why you got here. It's kind of interesting. Uh, initially, my, uh, I started out on, on Wall Street. Um, and actually, while I was on Wall Street in New York, I, I graduated from Wharton, uh, went to school while working in New York, Moved out here in the 96 to apply my trade to the tech industry and uh, was largely focused on, I'd say, the hardware elements of the hardware industry and that morphed into what I would describe as industrial technology largely and uh, what today is clean tech, I would say, was subsumed into industrial technology and that's where I first got my interest in it, industrial technology because of um, longer life cycles, bigger problems to solve in terms of the, the, the challenges. And um, the clean tech space or recycling space, if you will, is on the one hand, one could say is um, I came upon via the, the random walk of life. On the other hand, it's something that uh, uh, I understood um, needed solutions and uh, prior to founding New Rubber Technologies, I was involved with a, a glass recycling business and, and um, prior to that, uh, a company that uh, created the first 3D laser technology for industrial survey applications, which was, came from a technology base that was very prevalent in the communications sector. And uh, so I just went sort of stepwise from hardware tech that was focused on IT to industrial tech to wow. recycling within technology, so, and then one 
recycling business to another. Yeah, everybody has a, a different way to end up in their journeys or to start the next part of their journey anyway. And it's really interesting. So so you, so you can say, this is not like I had to save the world kind of thing. This You're actually doing that anyway, but you came here via the industrial sector or the tech sector to the industrial sector saying this this matters to you. Or is it more like this is a hell of an opportunity that we can really help the world at the same time? I mean, everybody has a different way to getting here, but they all some come out some come out the same here. Yeah, it's it's a bit of both. What I would say fundamentally is these technologies only work and are only sustainable if they're economic. So from a, it has to work from an economic standpoint, right. and right. Uh, that's a lens that rule number uh, one. Rule number one, and that's a, a lens that uh, I had to look at it through. Yes, there was a passion to see if I could uh, help redirect technologies to uh, these different sorts of issues that needed um, a resolution, but it was also that there had to be an economic opportunity in in parallel. Mm And I, I know you have a prototype plant or something working right now or some demonstration, stuff like that. I th- I'd characterize it uh, as a little more fulsome than that. It is our first plant. So as we continue to evolve as a business. I wasn't we'll, meaning diminutive at all. I was just saying it's a, it's the first plant. Yes. It, yes, it's the first plant. Every it's, time you build a first plant, it's sometimes a, a tough business, right? Absolutely, and, and a tough business for other reasons too. But uh, First Plant is located about an hour east of Detroit. If you're going to start a rubber business in the U.S., you want to be in the Midwest. Right. We're about four hours from Akron, Ohio, which is sort of the epicenter of uh, at least the historical uh, genesis of the rubber business in in the U.S. We're um, about equidistant from the largest part of the rubber business in Canada as well. And um, that said, uh, logistically, we can serve f- pretty much um, most of the U.S. We have a customer in San Diego, as an example. So logistics aren't an issue. We will build a second or a third plant in other parts of of North America mm-hmm. just to improve logistics. But, yeah, the first plant is um, – we're in about 125,000 square feet. We have uh, – a vertically integrated business model that I'll describe what I mean by that uh, here in a few minutes. But what that Im- implies is that there are different elements to our business. Devulcanization is one of the steps. We've got about 10,000 metric tons per annum of capacity in that respect. But then we also have the ability to then take that material and turn it into other kinds of materials that have application both for the rubber and what's called the thermoplastic elastomer market. And then we actually mold products as well. So we've got uh, uh, a lot of uh, molding press capacity and we mold products that uh, go into both the retail and the industrial markets. So that was a value added for your customers basically so they didn't have to go to someone else, buy the source and then get it stamped or molded so to speak. Yeah, I think the the primary motivation was really how to was to learn to work with our material, so that we could give the customers for our material the how to use guide as well as the material itself. Got it. Because this Got is it. something makes sense. Yeah. Make something new. It was also to help uh, pay the light bills. Uh, if I was to be intellectually honest, I don't think that it. Uh, it, it is added to the working capital burden as opposed to just being a, uh, a defray of, of, uh, of the burden of development. But um, it has 
been primarily for the purpose of, of learning how to work with the material and, and being able to share that knowledge with our customers on the material side. Okay. All right. And the plant has decent capacity then at this moment. It does. It does. Um, 10,000 metric tons is, of devulcanization is um, – that's about – call it um, 25 million pounds a year. You're talking about a commodity at that stage of the business that's uh, probably a, a 50-cent commodity. So you know, um, it's in the, the teens in terms of that piece of the plant. You then add the others, inclusive of the uh, the molding capacity, and the capacity, the dollar equivalent, if you if you will, is yeah. you know plus or uh, plus or minus about twenty five million dollars. Wow. Okay. All right. And that's number one plant. That's number one plant. That's right. Good. What's uh, what's we're going to get into competition in a second because I know there's other ways to cast uh, look at the rubber thing, but let me just do this for a minute. This is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host Roland Vandermeer, and I'm joined here by in the studio with my guest David Parker, founder and CEO of New Rubber Technologies. If you have a question, please give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four nine four two seven eight six six. So 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 David, there's there's a spectrum of things, but here you have a plant. It's ready to go. You have some customers coming online. Everything's building up right now. Um, and you mentioned that this is more of value-added products than going into tires necessarily because tires is a very unique niche of that. So what kind of, can you talk a little bit about those kind of value-added products? Are they understandable by our audience or are they so esoteric we won't get that? No, they're quite simple. In fact, um, most of what we do from a, a molded product perspective is flatware, which is just a fancy way of saying mats, which on the one hand, uh, per my comments earlier, are a simpler application to address because it's a static application, but there is a way actually to create significant value. And the way you do that is by having attributes that aren't common or are only achievable with very expensive polymers. Mm. And thus, if we can get our hands on the end-of-life version of those very expensive polymers, as an example, we, um, we, we take waste from the medical equipment industry. Okay. So companies making stoppers for test tubes, as right. an example. Very, very high-quality rubber that has to be – Really? Um, has to be – can't let air through it, right? So right. it's um, – uh, these particular kinds of rubbers happen to be very UV resistant, so they don't degrade in sunlight. They, in con- conjunction with other um, elements of the formulations that we aggregate, are resistant to uh, grease and to oil, which doesn't sound very exciting, but if you put an industrial anti-fatigue mat in an industrial application under the feet of a laborer, in a motor, a motor company where there's um, cutting fluid present, it means the difference between the mat lasting less than a year and lasting five or more years. So really? Okay. It's, and that sort of a mat versus what I will call just a base-level generic mat can sell for you know two two to three times and without any difference in the in the cost structure for us. Okay. Let's, so, so you take these little stoppers and, uh, and then you – build industrial mats for specific applications that are much more durable than the my doormat, so to speak. That's right. right. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Um, and that's a simple application. For that's you. a simple application. And, and there are only so many products we want to choose, right? We don't want to be in competition with our materials customers ultimately. Yeah. And if you 
talk about the rubber market, if you add medical, consumer, industrial, all of it together, it's probably a four to five hundred million dollar, four to five hundred million dollar market, and the the variety of products that are within that enormous scope are tremendous, as you might think. And our goal is to have a business that ultimately is about a quarter represented by molded goods and three quarters represented by materials. Yeah. So you don't have to go beyond one very small, what seems like a very small vertical, but um, even when you take a very, very narrow slice of a very large market, it ends up being a, a big market. What would be that after this, these uh, industrial, these very high-grade mats you're talking about, what's, what would be the next interesting product that you're focused on that's a scale enough for you to focus on? On the product side of the business, yeah. we actually don't have a plan in the next number of years to go beyond mats. There's because a, it's that big. It's that big. Okay. All and, right. That's, that's interesting to note. And the emphasis in Chapter 2 is going to be – to, is going to be on the material side of the business. There's much greater leverage, as one can imagine, uh, with respect to the level of capital investment that can be derived and the, and the breadth of, of market penetration that one can have. So uh, on the material side of the business, we are at the nascent stage of that. We do have our first closed-loop customer that's proved out the technology with respect to a certain kind of polymer, which... To give you a sort of a sense of the scale, uh, there's another customer who we're in discussions with that uses the same kind of polymer who throws out, by my estimation, based on some of the numbers they've shared with me and doing some of my own interpolation, they throw out somewhere between 50 and $75 million of rubber a year. That's just wow. their production waste, which they can't reuse. And where does that go? Uh, primarily to landfill or, wow. or, or it's burned. So most, yeah, and burning, we know what that does to the atmosphere and everything yep. else, and the toxins in that burn are awful too, right? That's right. So it's a really hazardous waste in that sense. Um, so, so let's go to competition a little bit. So, so there are a lot, all these tires out there, all, you said almost half are so, so-called recycled, which is yep. a misnomer sometimes. Yep. Um, but those that do recycle, what are they doing that's, and that's different than you're doing? And, and if you can do that very quickly without getting into too much chemistry for our audience. Sure. The the short answer is that it's really being done by China. And um, the way it's being done in China is by using very high heat, very caustic chemicals, high pressure, which means steam, which means water. You combine nasty chemicals with water and you can imagine you've got effluents and then you add very high heat and you've got the VOCs you described. So it's a right. very, very nasty process. But that's the competition when uh, – U.S. manufacturers today manufacture and they want a, uh, a cheaper input material to complement the virgin material that they do use. It, is, it comes from China predominantly for, and India as well, but those are the two largest markets. That process that I just described is illegal in North America. It's illegal in Europe for good reason. Um, and the Chinese government has, in fact, said it will be illegal in China in two years. Really? Yes. So there's about uh, 12 million tons of this reclaim consumed in China alone a year. And the Chinese government has already begun to start shutting down some of the So they've the stopped taking our waste. We know that. That's been, yes. I don't people are following the news here, but the China's just said no more waste. You know, they don't want it. They That's don't want this. Maybe, although, oh, highest end waste possible they will accept. But other than that, they don't want it. So we have a real garbage problem piling up here. Literally. That's right. Okay. So 
so you're saying China was the primary competitor. There's not really anything else on the radar screen. I've seen so many tire recycling plans in the last 10 years, you know, that do all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, And they talk about the metal. They talk about carbon black, okay, carbon yep. black. And the highest quality carbon black possible has always been the argument. But it's hard to ensure quality. It's hard to get it there. It's hard to be consistent on that. Can you give us a little framework for that? Well, I've seen literally 10 plans in the last 10 years of – different companies trying to do something, none of which I think have actually made it. Maybe one or two are, are struggling still right now. So the vast majority of, of companies that recycle end-of-life tires, and it is predominantly tires that are recycled, not this industrial waste because of this challenge with respect to a, a lack of collection infrastructure, uh, chop these tires up and put them, glue them back together with polyurethane under heat and pressure, which is uh, has a utility. It has a, a, an attractive price point in the market, but it's a very, very small market vis-a-vis the size of the market from which these materials came. So you've, you've solved you've, – that's a solution for about 2% of the waste stream that's out wow. there. Uh, carbon black, as you mentioned, is um, another useful material – uh, carbon black is, in fact, a reinforcing agent in rubber. What goes into rubber is of a, high, a very high quality carbon black, so there are no recyclers of uh, carbon black that goes back into high-end rubber applications that I know of. Uh, most of the carbon black that comes from tire waste that has been recycled goes into pigmenting applications, goes into paint or uh, other such applications where it, it's really there just for the black, for the pigment value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you, what you're saying is no one's really stepped up and made their name here yet? Uh, correct. There have been a lot of people that have tried. Devolcanization is is challenging from a, a chemistry perspective, from a scaling perspective, um, Lots of companies have been unable to either solve the technical issue, have solved a part of the technical issue, but not all of it. Uh, Others have failed to get out of the lab and be able to scale it. Others have not been able to scale it with interesting economics. And others, I think, uh, probably compounded any one of those aforementioned uh, issues with a business model Right issue, i.e., focusing on one or two tire manufacturers and not appreciating there was going to be a five, six, seven-year life uh, sales cycle. Wow, wow. So, so given your background in investing and investment banking and helping tech companies as well as industrial companies succeed, you saw this opportunity and said, "Okay, here's an unmet need. Very limited competition. Tough to get into. Once you're into, you can defend it pretty well." All those good things. And I, I think uh, you have certain investors in there. How have, in general, though, have you found investors reluctant or interested and yet just watching? Um, what What is the attitude? Toward, because I think it's a fantastic product that you've developed and it's just waiting to just go the next step here. And what what do you think the appetite and why, why is good or bad or just not caring enough? What is it? Um, look, I think that uh, the... The timing of the start of this business vis-a-vis when the clean tech funding bubble grew and and then burst in North America was such that there is an a priori institutional skepticism towards uh, clean tech in general. Uh, I mentioned these other players that attempted 
to build businesses around the capability of devolcanization and not having succeeded at it, that adds to skepticism. So it is a challenge in terms of uh, the institutional market. That being said, there are always people that are willing to uh, take the time to understand uh, what's really being achieved and we've been able to find the capital that we that's we good. need. We'll need additional capital as we continue to grow, but thus far we've been able to find that capital, and it's um, it's come from uh, a few different sources. Some from from Wall Street uh, types, if you will, as well as um, executives that came from the big box retail industry. As an example, we've got an ex uh, Walmart um, executive that uh, certainly understands the product, the molded product side of the business, and right. the economics that we're competing against and sees uh, what, what can be achieved. So, so given that you have a, a, a running plant and, and customers, you know, coming online and everything, really you could use what I did the last four or five years is work in project finance. I mean, project finance might be an excellent source of capital to build up subsequent plants because once the technology is proven, it works, you know, it's about scaling and scaling matters Contracts with supply and contracts with offtake. Okay, yep. you have those things. You can project finance it. Okay, and it's within terms, of course. But you know, that, to me, is a much better form of finance than uh, firm equity because you don't dilute yourself. You invest in the plant. They invest in the bricks and mortar. You own the IP, you know, so to yep. speak. And, and that seems to be a really. Have you thought about doing that? Yeah, and I think we're we're soon approaching the point where I think that is a realistic option. If I was to look in the rearview mirror over the last couple of years, I'm not sure that that was really a, a realistic uh, alternative for us. I would have liked it to have been. It's hard to be on the first go around. Yep. You know, it's always it, because there has to be some more surety to it because it's a different form of finance. But yeah, yeah usually the, your firm equity is the, the risk takers and getting it you know, proven the first time and all that stuff. And then other capital comes available. And even there, you know, it, it, you know, these are what's a plant cost? You say your next plant, plant number two. How big would that, that be? How much capital is that? Twenty million dollar plant, thirty million dollar plant, ten million dollar plant. Well, if we were to build one that was about the same size as what we have today, something that can generate about twenty five million of um, revenue in its current scale, that's that's a single digit. Really? Million investment. So yeah. it's not that big a project finance deal. That's interesting, which actually makes it harder sometimes because there are very few project finance people that do smaller project finance deals. You know, there's skill sets to that. But um, we might talk about that offline. I can maybe yep. help you with some introductions there. But um, so, so that's an option too as you, as you scale your company, okay? And that's really yep. awesome. Um, you know, I'm, I'm – you mentioned two things, okay, that I want to follow up on. So you think you're uniquely focused, actually, in the specialty rubber area, pulling out the specialty projects out of recycling those, but this is just it's a collection issue, right? How do you tackle that problem? Because this is like medical waste you mentioned, or laboratory waste, or whatever it is, which is usually wrapped up with hazardous waste kind of things a lot of times, right? Biohazard waste. Is there a methodology you have to get that to collect that? Are there people that could help you do that? The, the collection of it isn't actually a, a challenge. Um, you can get 44,000 pounds on a truck coming in. And as I say, we have a, a customer in San Diego, which is um, uh, if you were to draw, put two, pin, two pins in a map in North America and, and draw a line between those two pins, it would be very difficult to find something further away from us. That customer sends us all their waste. We process it. We send it all back. So 
the logistics are not an inhibitor because it's a high-value polymer in that case. So logistics aren't really the issue. It's um, the, the, the primary challenge is simply just the technical solution. Each and every application, particularly in a closed-loop application, is different and has a slightly okay. different set of issues to contend with. Well, it's really about a market. Okay, we're going to go into a second. Let, let's do this for a second. We need to take a short break here. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is David Parker, founder and CEO of New Rubber Technologies. Stay with us as we continue our conversation after the break. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, part by, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Welcome back. I'm Roland Benham, your host of Bay Area Ventures, Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm joined here by my guest, David Parker, founder and CEO of New Rubber Technologies, uh, who is talking about the issue with rubber, but mostly about how to recycle it, how to repurpose it, put it to better use, because there's a toxic problem to this world, and it continues to be and has not been solved yet. In fact, we talked about how they're burning most of it, even though they call it recycling. And that that's not recycled, it's usually put into a dump. And so very small portions being recycled. And David is an expert in the matter, because he has to be. He's running the company that's going to tackle this problem. If you have any questions, please give us a call at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four nine four two seven eight six six. So David, let's let's go a little bit into the application. So you find this rubber, you find there's the sources are not a problem. In fact, people have a problem getting rid of their rubber right now, right? So that's right. They have to dump it, burn it, and it costs money to burn it. I'm sure it does. Uh, there's a probably a high cost. Do you have any metric on that, by the way, so I can ask you? If I want to bury my rubber, it's probably per ton waste. That's exactly right, and it really it's a regional 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 just setting. like all waste. So it's just landfill waste. I think. How about burning it? Is there a cost of that? Uh, there is, and it's uh, fairly similar to Landfill. well, yes. Okay, I, it'll vary from similar economics to actually generating a modest level of of return for the provider of the waste. Okay, so in, traditionally in waste management, we call that a tipping fee, getting That's rid right. of your garbage. Okay, you pay someone to do it. It's called a tipping fee. It's an ironic term, but it is what it is. So so tipping means the truck would tip the garbage over into the dump, and that's where it came from, but yeah. just so people understand that. So do you get to collect that fee if you take their waste? Is that a possibility too? Is that a revenue stream for you? It really varies from situation to situation. The philosophy that we've had is not to be greedy on the front end, but rather to secure the better feedstocks that are out there okay. and to work with uh, these producers in, in concert. There are there are a lot of companies that talk about wanting to do the right thing, actually getting it through the system, if you will, takes time. So rather than make that an impediment, we look at we look to make it uh, economically neutral or perhaps beneficial to yeah. to that company. Yeah, we've we've seen that in primarily in, in the past when we were doing that tipping fees as well as this idea of you know we do it cheaper. It's almost better to give them an upside. You know, sometimes like uh, you charge a tipping fee, or look if we make money, you make money too, and then splitting that too. Sometimes CFOs really resonate with that idea, yeah. but it's it's a it's a concept. So there's plenty of supply here. Now let's talk about the application area. So now you're gonna. Process it, put it to work, come out with this new rubber, okay, which is used for, as you said, these mats. Um, is there an unlimited – what other application areas would you think about? But you said this mat process is fantastically huge, so that doesn't seem to be a problem addressing it uh, or tackling it or getting those orders. Is that what you're saying? Or are there other application areas in that that you want to tackle? 
the map market is very large. The other sorts of applications that will address from a material perspective are as varied as uh, conveyor belting, hoses and fan belts. Um, about 40% of rubber goes into the automotive sector. Um, asphalt modification, which means modifying the bitumen, the liquid portion of asphalt, uh, either for roofing applications or road paving applications. Each of these markets are you know, vast, vast markets, and, and the solution, the technical solution, is is different for each of these markets, and uh, those are markets that we believe that we have technical solutions for, and in some instances, initial customer traction. Oh, fantastic! Okay, all right. So, um, on average, how many? You, you so let's let's be really clear. You think there's three applications you just mentioned that you could go after, and you've kind of proven out. You think they address it, it tackles it, and and your solution is probably one of the best out there for it. As a supplier of material, that's yes. correct. We have no intention of manufacturing the sorts of products I just described. In the yeah. case of the asphalt applications we're looking, we're, we're partnering with somebody that is in the asphalt business, is um, a provider of the bitumen that goes to um, the contractors uh, and uh, municipalities, what have you, in that market. So we're bringing a, a value-added solution Um Today, asphalt, as an example, is modified with virgin polymers. Uh, it is can be either rubber or something called a thermoplastic elastomer. There's uh, a very sophisticated, very high-value thermoplastic elastomer that we're able to emulate, uh, not on a one-for-one -one basis, but on an economically advantaged basis. And we are uh, at the stage where we've just gone from uh, succeeding in the lab trial in lab trials to now going into production trials so we're not yet in the roads or on the on roofs yet these are asphalt shingles uh traditional asphalt and aggregate shingles which are the the largest part of the roofing market here in North America so we're just we're just crossing that chasm into production trials now wow okay all right and Let's talk about customer application because your plant is located in wonderful Akron, Ohio, where the kind of the center of the rubber industry started the entire. I think well, it's about four hours from Akron. It's actually on the Canadian side of uh, the river, but about uh, a, a, about an hour about an hour east of of Detroit, and actually south of Detroit. It's that funny part of the country where Canada actually dips down into right into the U.S. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Which is rubber capital road. So. Your, your application areas, you're basically a domestic company. Let's call it that. And we'll call it Canada domestic for, I think, who did that first? I think uh, Bush used to call Canada domestic as well. But um, not today's administration. But that's your primary market you're serving at this point. You don't think you you don't have to ship overseas at all? We do not ship overseas. Um, the San Diego customer, as I mentioned, uh, that I mentioned previously, actually manufactures uh, across the border in oh. Mexico, but um, one customer does not an international company yet make. We uh, think that we are going to be an owner-operator, largely an owner-operator in North America. We are looking at licensing uh, beyond the shores of the U.S. and are in very active discussions in that respect. We are... Um, talking to a particular company that's looking to uh, license our technology for Europe, which is a perhaps a 
at least as equally an interesting market to North America. It's actually larger than the North American market and has some other dynamics which uh, are very favorable from from our perspective. And then there are other parts of of the world that you could likely think of based on what I described is about to happen in China – which um, has us in some some interesting dialogues there from a licensing perspective. Well, this is pretty fantastic because, as I mentioned before, I've looked at about ten over the last ten years rubber type companies trying to, and you seem to be making the furthest progress I've seen, and actually in market with a plant that's operating with customers both in and out, supply feedstock as well as customers out, which is phenomenal. Okay, phenomenal. Um, and hopefully you make margin on that product as well, not on the plant, but on the on the product, which is important, right? Margin for the whole company has to do with scale. Scale comes over time. You've got it exactly right. We um, are actually we're profitable in, in Q1 on a plant-wide basis, fully soaking wet, absorbing all the overhead of uh, absolutely everybody, the development infrastructure as well as G&A. Uh, contribution margins on a direct basis, you're exactly right, are very important. And um, I don't want to share those uh, in this public forum, but they do vary. There are some applications that are are, uh, more challenging than others and some that are very, very attractive. And we've got a portfolio and like most businesses, um, one's looking to improve that portfolio over time. But yes, we've now finally gotten to the point where that direct product contribution is actually defraying the entire uh, corporate infrastructure. That, that's that's quite amazing, actually, and quite an accomplishment. You should be really proud of your team. Let's talk a little bit about the team. I mean, you have a, you built a company here. You've been at it how long now? Have you been there for? Uh, five years. Five years, which is pretty impressive because every company I know has been a lot longer and then and gone through a lot harder challenges, actually. So you've done a great job getting it there. Uh, tell me about the team. Tell me who's with you and and how this is working and who the critical players are. Yeah, there are a number of them. Uh, I would highlight our chief chemist. This, while this is an industrial fulfillment business, this is a material science. Um, uh, it's built by Material Science Foundation. We have uh, a couple of chemists and other technically minded people. Our chief chemist is a, actually a biochemist by background, which is uh, probably what led him to look through a different lens on, in terms of how to solve this issue and come up with the unique solution, the unique chemistry that we do have. It is a patented uh, process. Uh, our chief chemist is the author of, of that process. It is uh, It utilizes biological additives that are actually food and medicine ingredients. Oh, really? So there's uh, nothing, wow. nothing harmful about uh, the chemistry that we use. But you wouldn't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, uh, actually, uh, not in that direct form, but uh, no harm would come from you from doing it. So and environmentally, it's, it's pretty sound process is what you're saying. Yeah, I can, I can assure you, you have eaten food and have used medicine that uses yeah. these ingredients. Yeah, that's wonderful. So this is what makes it much more palatable for the United States and other countries around the world to accept your process and technology versus what they do in China. That's right. So it's um, it's – Friendly chemistry, it's, it's uh, ambient temperature in some instances, l- low-level thermal content in others, significantly lower than uh, competing processes. But uh, uh, Jim Fisher, our chief chemist, is, um, is the brainchild of, 
the process and it is a, a chemical, mechanical, and in some instances thermal implementation. But the, the magic is in the chemistry. The mechanical components are all third-party, off-the-shelf oh. components that can be bought from any number of different uh, manufacturers. So okay. Nothing too complex on the uh, on the technical. Uh, excuse me, on the on the infrastructure side. We do tweak it as anybody would for a it's particular. It's an operation. Yep. Full of one plant. Yeah, we understand that very well. Yep. Anyway, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. I'm joined here in the studio by my guest, David Parker, CEO and founder of New Rubber Technologies. If you have any questions, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-849-427-866. And we are talking about recycling rubber in this fantastic plant that David and company has built to actually take and repurpose rubber of all sorts, high-end, low-end, and bring it in and put it to better use again, which is a big environmental problem. I can't, I can't stress enough how this is as toxic as you can get. The recycling can be toxic, but the rubber left forever will – does it even decompose? I mean, how many thousand years does this rubber decompose in? Many. Yeah, it, it's incredible. I mean, plastic is a big problem. Rubber is even worse in some ways. R- plastic we just see floating everywhere. That's right. Um, which is another thing we must tackle soon. So, so you have this plant. You have an incredible team. Um, the plant is operational in just above the border in Canada, above over Detroit. There, right? That's right. Um, and um, and you plan to build more plants in time. Okay, very soon actually. Um, so, so tell me what the next steps for the company are right now. What, what's what are what are what are you looking forward to this next coming twelve months, twelve eighteen months? It's really getting some of these uh, nascent materials opportunities um, off the ground. Uh, as I mentioned, in some of the applications, we've gone into production trials. There is uh, some infrastructure that we've got to put in place to really fulfill on high volumes. And it's a little bit of the, the chicken and the egg issue with some of these very, very large customers. And our, our strategy is not to go too broad, but to pick and choose some very specific customers for very specific reasons, and they tend to be very, very large. And And to have those conversations in a credible way, it requires a roadmap that um, is going to be able to deliver a, a meaningful level of recycled material or material um, uh, reuse for yeah. for for the corporations, for these companies to really sort of get organ- organizationally um, invigorated and, and excited about engaging in, in right. the Right. The timing and they, they take a little more time, but it's all happening now. I mean, go back to the competition thing and, and other solutions out there. I have not encountered a solution that solves this problem well yet. You know, I've seen plasma type, you know, solutions and that's incineration at the highest, highest temperature, which can work, but it's just a nasty business, a lot of energy, a lot of cost to that as well. But I have not seen anything break down and reuse in a really economical way yet. You know that that I would get behind. Do you see anything in? The, if you sit there, click a clean slate of paper. Do you see anything out there that you think could could compete and could be out there, or is going to compete, or what? Or is it one of many solutions? I, I think ultimately the market is going to need more than just us. It, it's going to need other people that have other alternate solutions. The, the market is so large that. Uh, it's not something that keeps me up at night, mm-hmm. competition that is. The rate of adoption certainly would be a, uh, you know, a, a, a variable that uh, somebody looking at the business critically ought to be more focused on vis-a-vis competition. Uh, you mentioned the two biggest challenges, though, 
from a solution perspective, it is high energy input, which equals cost. And it is other environmental externalities, which are negative in the, in the other processes. Are there other people that are going to come up with things that are the competitive? Absolutely. We continue to evolve and um, are actually in the process as we speak of augmenting uh, our existing devolcanization line with our second generation process, which takes about another 20% of the cost out. So um, yes, there'll be other players. I hope there are other players that, that succeed as well, but we're just going to keep uh, making investments and continuing to take the art forward and, and uh, Im- improving the solution that we have for the marketplace. So this year looks like a very good year for you with uh, customers pushing forward to the next steps with you. Yes, um, which isn't to say that we don't have our challenges. Uh, as you well know, when you're in an industrial fulfillment ecosystem, you there's friction that just exists vis-a-vis some um, online or electronically based businesses as examples. I would say our biggest challenge, quite frankly, are, are people. We, we cannot find enough uh, line personnel to uh, grow at the rate we would like to grow. We are leaving business on the table, and um, it's a real frustration. Uh, really? And, and, yeah. And that's where, where are you looking for people? Um, this is Ontario, the province of Ontario that yeah. we are in, yeah. and um, it's something that we're looking to – I, I, I presume there was a lot of unemployment in that region because of what's happened. The automotive has that changed dramatically. Right? People moved out, and everybody's reshifted and rebalanced already. Yeah, it's it's a combination of. Uh, it's actually fairly. I describe it as fairly full employment levels. Yeah, I think you've also got some, um, some provincial and and federal challenges vis-a-vis the way business is conducted in the U.S., which makes for a, a more challenging um, workforce in, in certain respects. There, uh, But there, there, there are issues that we, we're looking to, looking to solve and, and are currently trying to address. There you have it. You're looking for good people in a good part of the country you know, to work on something really meaningful, actually. And the type of talent you're looking for when you say that, that's, is that managerial? Is that chem- engineering? Is that basic you know, know-how workforce that understands what to do in the, in the plant, physical plants? The, the, the latter. From a, from, a, from a technical perspective, we're well served with um, our chemists. Um, from an operational perspective, managerial perspective, we've got a – we actually in November of last year brought in – a gentleman that had run a, a, a plant for one of Canada's largest industrial companies. Um, uh, the operation was about 1,400 people, if my memory serves me correctly. He's been through scaling a, a, a wind tower business before that went from um, effectively single-digit millions to um, many hundreds of millions in revenue in a, in a five-year time frame. So we, we've got the right uh, – Technical team, both from a chemistry as well as an operational perspective. I, I'm just talking about right. the guys that the guys and girls that actually get it done on a on a daily basis. So, we're part of what we're looking to do is is just improve the the um, the the automation content and quotient of of what we're doing. Right, right. It's amazing that you're saying this. I mean, of course, with unemployment rates, you can argue that that's going to be an outcome of that too, but. 
you know, the crying of more jobs, more jobs, and here you're looking for talent, you can't find it. So it's quite amazing. But um, and and do people come from the U.S. to go work there, or it's all Canadian based right now? It's largely Canadian based. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're just a, a less than a handful. And of the reason for the locating the plant there instead of in the, in the U.S. side. I mean, you're out here in California. I get that, and your operation headquarters is probably here. But that's right. But um, the plan, I understand the region, the, what Canada versus U.S., it, was that environmental concern? Was that just the – what was the issue? What was the reason you the, went there? Part of the genesis of it was fairly significant provincial incentives that uh, okay. uh, were in place at the time we started the plant. Okay. And um, as our good Wharton professors would have instructed us all those years ago, don't, don't count on subsidies remaining and that uh, they have largely gone away. Luckily, they weren't – uh, as significant for our businesses as some others who are in that lower end of the market of repurposing uh, material into, into lower end applications. Um, but when you're starting a business and you've got limited capital processing fees that uh, come from a provincial government, they, they were meaningful at the outset. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes some sense. Good. And you mentioned plant number two will be located somewhere in Southern California? I no? think it, number two will most likely be in the southeast. And, southeast. And the, and the third plant uh, in the west. I'm not sure that it will be California necessarily, but either California or Arizona or uh, near a big, big metropolitan okay. density, if you will. Okay. So, so if I were to want to research, you know, new rubber technologies and, and yourself, where would I go? What, what, what's your URL? What other information do you recommend I look at? The URL is is www.newrubbertech.com, newrubbertechtech.com. That's a good place to start. There is a a button on the website that. Um, uh, for those that have an inquiry, that'll generate an email to us, and uh, and we'll be responsive. Okay, all right, and um, and right now, so so one, you're looking for more talent, more labor talent that really knows what they're doing, over in the beautiful suburb of, or the is it a state, Ontario? Sorry, it's Ontario, right? It is the province of Ontario. And yes. What what town do we know? The name of the town is Tilbury. Okay, it's okay. Um, about. So those so, listeners that are up in that area here have a fantastic opportunity to help the planet, help the, this company build and actually be successful with it. It would be really interesting. So that's one. Okay, two, always looking for project finance capital, other capital. That's a constant job of any CEO to do and look for that. So that's also welcome. Um, what other things do you need? Um, what other things do you – I think just uh, more evangelists out there, there are th- – there are a number of very large players in this industry, so there aren't that many rocks that we have to overturn to build a very big business. But but it's uh, turning over the correct rocks and uh, going from conception to execution in these big organizations and actually diverting uh, and changing processes is uh, not – it's not uh, – an insignificant event. So it's evangelists and, and contacts with uh, board level personnel and, and the like once the technical sale has been made. Okay. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're out of time, David, and thank you for coming on the show. Um, we know our listeners can go to newrubbertech.com. And thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you missed the last two hours, feel free to check out on demand Sirius uh, XM app and follow our channel on Biz Radio 132. Uh, you can also follow me at 
R.A. Vandermeer on Twitter if you want to. And a reminder, we're live each Monday at 4 p.m., 7 p.m. Eastern, and Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. Once again, thank you for Rob Herbutt from Agricultural Capital and David Parker from New Rubber Technologies today. And I'd like to thank our host, Dana Cash, and assistant producer. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 